You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was excited to have Udemy CEO Greg Brown on the podcast today. I'm excited for listeners to hear about Greg's drive, his curiosity, his integrity, and how he brings those three things together and holds himself to a standard and then recruits and builds teams of people that hold themselves to those same very high standards. For me, it is about the process and then being maniacal about focusing on that process and not being distracted. Those are stoic principles and those are principles that that I believe have a one-to-one translation to this fast-paced, ever-changing world that we live in today. This week, I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Udemy CEO, Greg Brown. You'll hear about his philosophy of learning, life, and discipline, and how rigor and curiosity in your personal life is connected to success in your professional life. Greg has spent decades leading successful technology companies, and I've seen firsthand how he is leading Udemy through phenomenal growth. His focus on building strong teams and culture ripples across the company, and the discipline he brings to everything he does is evident across the organization. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Alan. Your professional accomplishments speak for themselves, and so I want to start by diving into an important topic. Last week on the show, we had the author of the book, Curiosity, Ian Leslie, talking about how important curiosity is to success in life and how to cultivate more of it. And I know that you're an intensely curious person. You have varied interests from history, philosophy, sports, health, fitness. So let me start with just how does your curiosity in these seemingly unrelated topics connect and shape the way you live your life? That's a really good question. I'll start by saying when I get asked, what are the traits that I look for in a senior leader or somebody that's going to join one of our teams? The three primary traits I look for drive curiosity and integrity. That's how important curiosity is to me. And I've always been intensely curious. I'm really kind of curious about everything that goes on around me. It, it permeates personal and professional life from, you know, there was at one point I had major neck injury from football and I had to have a three-level disc replacement. The only options that I had in North America uh, that were approved by the FDA was a three-level fusion, which, you know, I would not be able to live the life that I wanted to live as far as being active. I just flat out said, that's not, that's not acceptable. And so my curiosity and drive led me to the culmination of flying to Germany and getting a three-level multi-level disc replacement in my neck performed by surgeons that had done this for 10 years with state-of-the-art technology that was developed, ironically, 20 miles from my house. But that was all driven by curiosity and a drive and just not being willing to accept what I believed at the time was a less than reasonable alternative. And, you know, that curiosity permeates work as well. What I'm fascinated by, Greg, is that you didn't accept dogma or conventional wisdom. And I think a lot of people do, right? They follow the rules, they listen, and they do what if the doctor says it, they're like, they're the doctor. And in that instance, you chose not to. And I'm wondering, I think that's true across a lot of top performing people that they're willing to just keep asking more questions and not just accept conventional wisdom when they don't like the answer. 
Yeah, you know, I think that's fundamentally accurate. And I can only speak for myself that, you know, that notion of having a growth mindset and that with the advances in technology in that instance, yeah, I just knew that there was a better option. And and I was just not going to settle for a situation or a scenario that was not going to enable me to snowboard with my kids. I was not going to be able to do the things and live the life that I I want to live. I'm a very active guy. And yeah, I just wasn't willing to settle. And I think really that's, if you look at Elon Musk and all the innovators, and I'm not comparing myself to Elon Musk, please, but the barriers that guys like Musk and Jobs break just because they're not willing to settle for, like you said, the dogma of what has always been either the social norm or the accepted principles or the accepted solutions or options. And I think in Silicon Valley, really just in general, I think, you know, there's a probably a common thread among innovators and and leaders that are just not going to settle for what has always been done, that there's a better way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's a great example. So uh, just going back to history, philosophy, sports, and, and connecting those things for you, we've talked about Churchill. What is it you find intriguing about history or philosophy or Stoics or Sun Tzu, Art of War? Well, history has always been interesting for me because history repeats itself. And so the better you can understand what those cycles are and what those key themes or key scenarios that do repeat themselves, ideally, you can be better prepared to deal with it. And, you know, Stoicism really was, it kind of came out of the Roman times thousands of years ago. But the operating principle or the framework itself is still very applicable today. And I've you know, read a lot, meditations and you know, some Seneca's work. And the core principles, you know, courage, wisdom, justice, and temperance, temperance is really about discipline. I think, you know, those of us that, you know, work to embody those concepts into a framework today are better for it. I talk all the time about controlling the controllables, and that's a stoic principle. Do your best to separate the things you can control from what you can't control and focus on the former. Focus on the stuff you can control because it really is a fool's errand to spend cycles trying to, you know, worry about or fret about things that are just outside of your control. And there's fundamental a component of teaching you to view obstacles as opportunities and to become you know, less emotionally reactive to things that are going on around you. And, and I also meditate. And you know, meditation helps me with that. And so these are just either frameworks or principles or tools that I use to ideally put myself in a, a grounded state that enables me to operate from an individual perspective at the highest level I can to better serve my team, my organization, my company, my family, my boys. And they're grounding for me. Uh, it's something to fall back on and something that I do spend time developing. So Bill Belichick, who you remind me of, he's the head coach for the New England Patriots, says he prefers the pain of preparation to the pain of failure. And I'd say that's a great principle and it describes you. I would agree. You know, I'm maniacal about the details. And Belichick and also Nick Saban talk a lot about the process. And this is something that I very much believe is it. You know, the results, the scoreboard, that's an outcome that, you know, largely is a result of the process of the work that you put in over the years to prepare yourself to compete and then eventually ideally have a positive outcome. But it really is all about the process. It's all about the details. Every day I came up on the sales side. And so whatever I'm talking about, the way I thought about preparing myself to be successful in sales for me, it was always about the wind sprints. I talk about cold calling as the wind sprints. It was always, I was going to control my own destiny and control the controllables. And the controllables for me were what I could do to develop my own pipeline 
and be the best I could be at developing that pipeline and then harvesting that pipeline, irrespective of what I was going to get from marketing. That I always view that as just gravy. But I was not going to allow myself to be in any way dependent on anybody else other than what I needed to do to be successful. And so, you know, for me, it is about the process. And then being maniacal about focusing on that process and not being distracted. Those are stoic principles. And, and those are principles that, that I believe have a one-to-one translation to this fast-paced, ever-changing world that we live in today. So I, you and I have talked about another football coach, Bill Walsh, who wrote the, the book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. And his general thesis is that the scoreboard is a lagging indicator of success. And I want to take this principle now and think about like, how do you set goals and how do you think about leading versus lagging indicators, especially in the context of control the controllables? You don't control a lot of those lagging indicators. No. In fact, ironically, and we're talking a lot about this right now as a leadership team, you know, we've got this macroeconomic environment we're all operating right now, which has got a lot of uncertainty in it. And the leading indicators for us, especially in terms of revenue, is whether or not we're starting to see our sales teams moving through the various sales cycles at a more normalized rate, faster than we have been in the downturn. So it's about sales cycle velocity is what we call that. And for me, that's the leading indicator for me. It's not revenue. Revenue is a trailing indicator. Revenue is going to happen as a result of the velocity that we move through that sales cycle. If we have enough leads coming through and moving faster through that sales cycle, invariably, the outcome is going to take care of itself. We're going to generate more revenue if we have the same close rates. So that's just one example of the type of leading indicators that we're looking at that are going to give us the foresight that we need to start ramping up hiring and scaling as you know we start to come out of the downturn. But I think a lot of organizations wait until they see the revenue, whereas I think that that's a mistake. You know, I think it is all about the leading indicators and, and again, about the process. So a takeaway for an emerging leader is you know, these, there's two concepts here. One, control the controllables. And the second, think about leading indicators. How do you put those two together? Uh, I'm just wondering, back when you were, you know, the early part of your sales career, you had to set a goal for yourself and you had to control the controllables. Trying to connect the two pieces so somebody can grab those two things and do something with it tomorrow. Yeah, again, just to pull that thread even further around sales. What did I do different? When I first joined a company at the time that no one had ever heard of, it was 50 people. It was called WebEx. I think most people know WebEx. It's a big web conferencing company today. It got bought by Cisco, and I was there for about eight years. And when I first joined, my commitment to myself was that first hour I came every, I had an East Coast territory, but I was based out here in San Francisco. So I was in the office at five o'clock in the morning. I know it sounds crazy, but I was. And I came in and I cold called for an hour every day. And one of the other things that I feel very strongly about, the whole concept of superpowers, I, I think that's overplayed, but I found that one of the things that I've had the ability to do over the course of my life, both personal and professional, is set my mind to something and be disciplined enough to not be deterred and to execute it without fail. And that's hard. A lot of people don't have the ability to do it. And I've learned that over the course of time as a rising through leadership and you know, obviously having a variety of different roles in different companies. What seemed to me to be somewhat straightforward, intuitively obvious and necessary is definitely not always the case. And so I bring it back to say, I was maniacal. I didn't miss a day. I wouldn't let myself miss a day. I cold called every day that I came in for an hour. And, and so that was, again, the discipline and the focus for me controlling my own destiny. And then for me, it was about 
how much pipeline was I developing? I had a pipeline target because I knew what we were converting through the pipeline from the top of the funnel. And that pipeline target, Greg, that was the lagging indicator, I guess. Somebody gave you a number and you're going, okay. Well, somebody gave me a, a bookings number that I quoted. So I had a quota at the end of it, right? And I said, okay, to get to that quota, then I need to have, back then it was 3X. I need to have three times as much as my quota and top of the funnel pipelines, first stage. So I needed to have, I had a million dollar quota, I needed $3 million at the top end of that funnel. So then I did everything I needed to do in my prospecting efforts to make sure that I had at least 3 million, I actually got more than that. And then my commitment to myself, I was gonna convert that pipeline at a higher percentage than the majority of the team. So I knew that if I got more in the top of the funnel and I converted at a higher rate, that I was gonna you know, be in the top quartile in the company. And that was how I viewed it. And very it played out that way. So I got promoted pretty quickly and started building my leadership, my management career and leadership career there. And I was off and running. But, you know, that's just one example. But it's about, the, you know, controlling the controllables, setting specific targets around leading indicators that you know that you've done the calculus, you've done the math, you figured out what it's going to take to ensure that regardless of, in this case, what marketing gave me, I didn't care if I got anything. I was going to develop enough pipeline in the top of the funnel and convert that pipeline at a rate faster than everybody else or a higher percentage than everybody else to get to the bookings numbers I needed. And, and it worked out that way. Yeah. So as a salesperson, you're not waiting for marketing to give you leads because you can't control. I can't control it. So in your experience, WebEx, in Europe, Middle East, and Africa, you took a lower performing region and turned it into a top performing region. What were the keys to success there? Businesses for me is all about people. Uh, it really was, I had some big changes. We changed out almost the entire leadership team. And, and it was about getting that leadership team aligned, rowing in the same direction and you know, putting a strategy in place that everybody bought into. And then it was about like, my, maniacal execution. The same concepts and principles were alive and that's really what we were executing against. And you know, I was learning all the time and we were learning. And it was my first real senior leadership position to where I had responsible for an entire region. And, you know, it really came down to people and, and execution. Yeah, I love it. So get the right people on the bus was the first thing you said, which is a Jim Collins principle from good to great. And then a strategy. And that's something I know you're really big on strategy. You're big on getting a group to develop it together and then big on communicating it. I think of Porter from Harvard. He said, the best CEOs I know teach and what they teach is strategy. You know, I, I love the word teach, by the way, because what teach implies is that the other people have to learn. But talk about how important that is to you, strategy, and then getting the leadership team to help create it, get aligned around it, and communicate it. Because I know that's, again, that's another sort of very deeply held belief for you. Yeah, it really is. And you know, teach, and another word for that is coach. And I really view myself as a coach, and coaches teach. So it's, just, it's almost one and the same. And again, it goes back to, you know, my early upbringing uh, as far as how I, you know, I had a dad that was a coach and I was very sports oriented, but my dad was also a teacher and my brother's a principal. So, you know, teaching and coaching and developing people and talent and investing in people is something that's just been inherent to me my whole life because I watched my dad do it growing up and it obviously had a big impact on my brother and I. Look, yeah, I do I invest a lot in developing an environment by which we as a senior leadership team can get together on a frequent basis. And initially, when I took the role, it, it was all about developing a strategy once the right people are on the bus. And yeah, I do have help. I do bring in help, as I mentioned before. I have a consultant that I work with very closely, Glenn Lede, who's wonderful. 
from the table group. And we do have a framework that we use based on the, the book, The Advantage, that Patrick Lencioni wrote. It really is an operating framework that we use to, to drive organizational clarity. And but really that clarity starts with the senior leadership team developing a thematic goal and key objectives for the organization that we're aligned around that we're going to go execute against, which are going to enable us to achieve that thematic goal. And that and it's got some stretch to it. Uh, and then from there, you know, we develop OKRs. You know, what are the objectives that we're going to go execute against to support that thematic goal. And then onward it goes in terms of how we cascade that clarity into the organization and make sure everybody understands that how their objectives and key results are going to align to what we're trying to get done as a company. And one of the things I've learned, and Glenn has helped with this, but is that you have to repeat it over and over. And it really needs to get embedded into the fabric of the organization. And the only way to do that is for senior leaders, myself and the rest of the leadership team to repeat those key messages, the thematic goal, the key objectives, and then the key results that are supporting those objectives and, and, and really repeat over. It takes seven times, they say, for a human being to really understand, digest, and implement new concepts. And we believe that. So, you know, that's, that's really kind of how we think about it. But, but for me, once I get the right people on the bus, there's nothing more important than getting everybody aligned around a strategy and creating clarity so the organization understands what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're going to do it, so we can actually go get it done. Yeah, and I think that's a, a key piece that you call create clarity that a lot of people don't think about. They think about leadership communications as a one-way direction. And I was going to ask, if you think about our our listeners who are early career, they aspire to leadership. I mean, I'm sure they're thrilled to hear what you just told us on how you go about thinking about this as a CEO and cascading it down. What is it you want them to know or do about leadership communications? How do they help? keep this all together and execute with you and for you? It's a good question. You know, when I was younger coming up in my career, for whatever reason, there was this perception that I had that the senior leaders in the organization, they had all the ideas and they were going to figure out the strategy and tell us what to go do. And they're smarter and been doing it longer than we were. And we're just going to take what they develop and, and go get it done. But, but the reality is, as I, I began to elevate the organizations that I was in and, and what have you, you know, you realize the reality is, all those folks up there aren't necessarily smarter. And, you know, the process really is when it's done right and done well, it's a collaborative effort. And those inputs have to come from more folks than just senior staff or you know, executive leadership. You know, those inputs come from customers. Those inputs come from partners. They come from employees up and down the organization to validate or invalidate principles of an overarching strategy that an organization is going to settle on. So, it really is, uh, for me, it's a team game. And that's how we play it. So when I would say when you're in, earlier in your career, it is not something that you should you know, put the weight of the world on your shoulders and figure, I've got to go develop the strategy for my team on my own. And I, you know, if I go ask for people for help, they're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. And you know, they're going to think I'm the wrong person for the job. Because a lot of young leaders think that, that you know, that's how they're going to establish their credibility is coming up with a strategy that everybody's going to say, wow, that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's innovative. That's a great strategy. That, that individual's you know, got it going on. The reality is you're going to get it wrong more times than you're going to get it right if you don't play it as a team game and, and involve you know, members of your team and members outside your team to battle test and validate whether or not the concepts you're implementing your strategy are actually on point. Uh, so play it as a team game. Life's a team game. Business is a team game. And the earlier you find that out and figure that out and realize that, uh, the more successful you're going to be. We don't do anything real important in life by ourselves. We just don't. 
And I don't care what it is, personal, professional, otherwise, right? You hear about the great accomplishments of folks. You know, I mentioned Musk earlier and all this. Uh, I just, I'm listening to his audiobook right now. Uh, and let me tell you something. He may take credit for everything, or I'm not going to say, it's, you know, he, it may seem as if he's taking the credit for a lot. The press gives him credit. The pre- that's what I mean. Uh, the yeah. perception is in terms of the way the press writes it is that, you know, it, it's all Elon. The reality is, you know, he's got, you know, if you listen to that book or read that book, he's got teams of folks around him all the time that are informing his ideas and shaping his thinking and so on and so forth. And that holds true with any organization that's innovating. So anyway, that's probably what I would impress the most. Yeah, I love uh, when you said battle test the strategy uh, up and down and get the best ideas and best thinking from everybody. And it always reminds me, I've adopted, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I, I love the apply that to business. The unexamined strategy is not worth executing. So to your point, if it's not battle tested, it's just one person at the top that thinks they have a strategy. I would never bet on that person and that strategy versus one that you say is battle tested amongst an aligned leadership team and a bunch of people all over the company that are like bought into it. 100%, I couldn't agree more. The buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. All right, I want to switch gears. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal last week this writer decided to copy the morning routines of famous CEOs for a week. So he did Jamie Dimon one day, the CEO of, of New York Stock Exchange one day, he read their morning routine. And three days in, he's late for work. He couldn't do the workouts. He couldn't make, it was just, it's a funny article. But I know you have a, a kind of a crazy routine, mental and physical well-being, really important to you. We talked a little bit about health and fitness. So can you just give us the short snapshot for our listeners who don't know, what's the Greg Brown morning routine? Maybe how did you come up? How did you come to figure it out? Yeah, I'll tell you what I did today. And it's pretty consistent with what I do most days. So I was up at five, I get up, uh, I had this stretching routine I do right out. I mean, literally roll out of bed and I do it 10, 15 minutes, meditate. This morning it was 10 minutes because I had a fairly tight schedule. It's usually 10 to 15 minutes, meditate. I go jump in a cold plunge right after that, which is something that's fairly new, but something that I'm now addicted to in the best of ways. Uh, so it's 48 degrees and uh, you know, I jump in this thing for three and a half minutes and I jump out and you know I feel like a million dollars. The dopamine rush and there's so many health benefits to it. How does it feel jumping in? What's the first thir- <laughs> 10 seconds like? The first time I did it, I literally you know, start hyperventilating. And I thought I may have a heart attack. I mean, I mean, my body was just, it, it was just going crazy. It was just going crazy. It was screaming at me. But so many, you know, a lot of folks that I admire in terms of how they view uh, health and wellness and health span, you know, Peter Atia and Andrew Huberman and so on and so forth, t- talk about the benefits. And I said, well, you know what, I'm doing this thing. But again, going back to discipline, 
you know, I just made my mind up. This is good for me and I'm going to do this. So first time I jumped in, it was one of the hardest things I've done. I literally got out and I don't know how I'm going to convince myself to get in this thing tomorrow, but I'm getting in this thing tomorrow. So I got it in the next day. And then what ends up happening is your body gets adjusted to it. And I read that and I believed it. And I was, at least I hope it was going to happen. And it did. So anyway, nonetheless, you get in now for the first minute, you know, you got to grind through the first minute. And then after that, everything's cold. And, you know, literally what I do now, I meditate. I breathe, you know, four in, four out. I'm meditating. I'm not thinking about anything. Before I know it, uh, the time's over. And, and there's sometimes that I stay in a little bit longer just because I want to continue to meditate. But the dopamine rush and just the health benefits are unequivocal and scientific. And uh, anyway, so it's something that's fairly new. A lot of people are talking about. But for me, it's part of my routine that I'll never give up now because it's having significant benefits. So anyway, I do the cold plunge. You know, I get out. You know, I'm getting you know ready for the day. What that means is for me is I three days a week of cardio and three days a week of strength training. I don't, and I don't usually do them on the same day. And then again, that's why I have to get up at five, get it done early, go do my shower, do my thing, eat breakfast, and then start preparing for the work day. And, and that's, that's my thing. And the only other thing I do is I do sauna at night, four nights a week. So that's pretty much my routine. But the meditation for me is invaluable. The cold plunge is invaluable. And then for the workout for me, uh, it's something I've done, honestly, since college, Alan. I mean, it's not always been done in the morning because I haven't always been a morning person. But now, since when I had kids, I had to start changing my schedule and working out in the morning. I wasn't going to get it done. But yeah, that's pretty much my day. So I want to know what the lesson is. Kind of like the Wall Street Journal journalist, I said, most of our listeners are going to be like, you know, I'm no Greg Brown. I can't, I can't rise to that occasion. I can't get up at five. I can't go do all that stuff. What's the lesson how does that level of discipline help you? And if somebody could take a small bite and make a small positive change, what would that be like? Any advice? So it does take discipline, but so I'm not at my best when my mind-body balance is out of whack. Meaning if I'm just grinding and I'm not getting a workout or I'm not getting in a lot of the stuff that I just mentioned, I can feel it. My energy levels start to drop. And so for me, it's about Everything I just talked about is setting myself up to perform at the highest level I can when I'm working, right? So there's a direct connection to everything I just talked about and the impact that it has on my ability to be the best I can be as a CEO of Udemy. And that that is why I do it. And I'm also very, very focused on health span, candidly, and not, not lifespan. Do I want to live till I'm 95 years old? I do, but only if I'm healthy, only if I'm living and the only way to do that, scientifically proven, is to stay strong, stay fit, cardiovascularly as well as muscularly. And there's a number of things that I'm doing, largely to be as productive as I can be now and to live a long, healthy life so I can be around for my great-grandkids and actually be active and being a part of their lives. So that's really what drives me. And I don't compromise. I don't allow myself to negotiate against the things that I'm doing right now that I know lead to me being more successful today and are going to lead me to live a long, longer, touch wood, a longer, healthy life tomorrow. Yeah, I love it. There's a Yale professor, Paul Bloom, who writes about pleasurable suffering. And I love the idea, right? It's the idea that suffering makes us more resilient and better able to handle hardships, right? So doing all those things you do, jumping in that cold tub, do you think all that discipline that keeps you doing that, do you, does that make you more resilient and adaptable to change? Uh, there's no question. Look, I've always felt like it was a competitive advantage for me to be healthier, more fit, uh, physically strong and capable, as well as you know, mentally acute. I, I feel like it's a competitive advantage. And 
something that I'm you know very co- you know committed to maintaining. And I would advocate to anybody that is really kind of thinking about how to structure their life to find balance, whatever that balance is for you. And not, you don't necessarily have to do everything I do. Find balance so that you have an outlet, so you have perspective. And I mean, I tell you, the meditation is is something that's so important as well. And to be able to pull back and not allow that monkey mind just to control every impulse and and to and to, to really not be able to actually have perspective on how you're living your life. Uh, I want to know your meditation. To connect that for us for how that allows you to be present. So what meditation has enabled me to do, which is to do exactly that, be present and not allow the thoughts that run through our heads a lot of the time throughout the day to control where my presence is, meaning not focused on necessarily what you might be saying, Alan, but my mind is somewhere else. And that is something that everybody struggles with. And I'm without question, I'm not absolved from that. I struggle from that as well. But meditation helps with that. And so how does that translate? When I'm in a meeting or I'm in a discussion with somebody, I work very hard to be present and focused on what that individual is saying, be present in that meeting. I do not have my laptop open. I'm engaged in the conversation. I'm digesting what's being discussed. And if I have a point of view or perspective that I think would be helpful, I'm sharing it. But I'm not somewhere else. I'm in the moment. And that is the same with my kids. You know, I've got 14 and 16-year-old boys and They're the most important thing to me in my life, without question. And when I'm with them, because roughly 90% of the time we spend with our kids is between zero and 18 when they're home. And then after they're gone, as you know, they're gone. And then you see them a couple, three, four times a year. And if you're lucky, you see them more, but you never know. So anyway, when I'm with my boys, I'm present. I'm not thinking about work. I'm doing what we're doing, whether it be this weekend, we went to Cal USC on Saturday. We went to the 49ers game yesterday. I'm with them and we're doing our thing. And But I really try to be present with whatever I'm doing in my life is the point. And that really is a function of you know, a lot of the, the learnings that have come out of my meditation practice, as well as being situationally aware to the fact that mortality is a real thing and you don't get those years back. I'll tell you from a work-life perspective, and here's something I would give to everybody, and I operate myself like this and I encourage everybody in my organization to do this is like, you don't get those missed plays and those missed sporting events back when you're out there being a road warrior and traveling. And there's times when you have to be on the road, but I'll tell you right now, and you know this about me, Alan, but my oldest son's playing football right now. My youngest son's going through a bit of an injury thing, but, but Braden, you know, he's a junior and I tell my EA, I'll go anywhere on any week, but you have to have me back in Pleasanton by four o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. Otherwise I'm not going right. Because his games start you know, shortly thereafter. And so for me, it's, it, it is finding that balance and it's not always easy, but it's just so darn important. You know, the old saying goes when they interview old folks, when they're either on their deathbed or they're in their later years, what are your regrets? The number one regret everybody has, everybody has is why did I work so hard and not spend more time with the people that I loved? And we should all learn from that. Yeah. I love Greg, that whole story. It starts with a mindfulness or meditation practice. It, it, it's how you connect that to being present. It's then how you connect that to prioritizing. Um, I love how you set boundaries and to be as scheduled to, to have a job like yours. You've got to say no to a lot of things. So I think that's great advice that anybody could put in practice tomorrow, a whole bunch of things. So as we wrap up here, Greg, I ask everybody this question, what are you curious about and learning now? 
you know, I'm curious about a lot. I think I mentioned earlier, I'm listening to Elon Musk's book. Yeah. And anybody that has had the impact he's had on the world in the short amount of time that he's been on the planet, he's younger than I am. Yeah, I'm intensely curious as to what makes that individual tick? What's different about them that I could learn and maybe embody a few of those traits or to learn something from how they've lived their life or how they think uh, and operate as a human being? For me, it's it's a lifelong. Yeah, you chose a biography. Are they Charlie Munger from uh, Berkshire Hathaway loves to read biographies. He particularly says, read biographies of dead people that you radically disagree with. Do you like biographies? I do. I've got a very wide range of content that I read and uh, absorb, you know, podcasts and you name it. I've got a thirst for learning, thirst for knowledge. And it's that growth mindset, right? You know, I just always feel like the minute you, you feel like you've learned it all, you're dead. The world's changing faster now than it ever has. And if you don't have a growth mindset, and have a desire to learn from others, then that's a world that I don't want to be a part of. Yeah. Greg Brown, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Alan, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Greg Brown for joining us on the podcast today. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.